Philosophy has always been a, a process of learning how to live our life in the best way possible. And, um, you know, this is a class on Buddhist philosophy, but that's just as true in, in the Greek philosophical tradition as well, where, um, according to Aristotle, the purpose of philosophy was eudaimonia, um, happiness, but not in the conventional sense, but in the sense of living a fulfilled life. And in Aristotle's view, um, you know, pleasure and comfort and um, material material gain was insufficient for for happiness. That, in fact, a life per spent pursuing material comfort and material gain was a wasted life because um, you couldn't really achieve eudaimonia that way. You couldn't really achieve happiness that way. And in his point of view, um, being in service to your society, being in service to community is one of the highest vocations. And the only way to do that skillfully is to think and live philosophically. Um, the purpose of philosophy, according to Aristotle, was to, to develop virtue. And virtue wasn't a set of rules or guidelines, but it was something that you had to be able to apply moment to moment using good judgment um, neither acting, um, neither acting too stingy, stingily or not sufficiently, nor um, acting too boldly or too bravely. Um, he said, it, you know, his view was that it was a balance, that, and that um, it, we were always in this process of of finding that balance, and that you really only knew if you had lived well in the dying process when you could look back on your life at the moment of death and 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 um, feel that your life had been lived in a satisfactory way. Um, something. The reason I bring up Aristotle now is that one of the things that I think in, that is interesting about Aristotle is he said that his view was that the highest vocation was political science and that the... Um, the most important role in society was that of the politician. And the reason was because the politicians were the ones who established virtue they, for, the, for the society that they, that they were responsible for. And one of the important things that politicians did was they decided, they helped decide the degree to which and the type of education that the society would offer their young people and their young adults. So from his point of view, the politician was the most important person in society because they determined how young people were going to be educated and it was the education of the youth that determined the future of your civilization. And so he said that the only way that could happen in a, in a way that was good for society is if the politicians were all well-educated in philosophy for the purpose of developing virtue and character. The ability to make the right decision under challenging circumstances. So philosophy is really how we become educated citizens. It's not just a question of 
logic and rationality and and um you know analysis of ethics it's really about how do we live well and and how do we live well means how do we engage with our society in ways that are beneficial for others and in buddhist philosophy of course the core problem is suffering and not just suffering but samsara the idea that suffering is a pervasive aspect of the unawakened life for all beings, humans, but also um, up to and including gods, that even gods experience suffering. Um, you know, gods are beings that live their life in such a way that they basically can be perpetually hedonistic. Um, gods have no conventional problems in the sense that um, humans and animals have problems. Um, gods are living a life where they never really have to set their feet on the ground and they never really have to be sullied by um, eating impure food or um, having um, body odor or anything like that. You know, gods are, are, have these beautiful bodies and everything that they, they always have whatever they want at a, at a, at a whim. But one of the, one of the main sufferings of God's life is that other beings are jealous of them and gods are having to constantly defend what they have. And, um, and even when they, uh, successfully ward off an invasion of the other jealous lesser gods, who have almost as much as the gods do, but are jealous of the gods that have a little bit more than they do. Um, when the gods successfully rebuff the invasion, their, um, their satisfaction is short-lived because the lesser gods rebuild their forces and then attack the gods anew. So even though the gods have everything that they could possibly want, they're constantly having to defend it from others who would try to take it away from them. And generally the gods always win, but nevertheless they're constantly having to struggle against, uh, struggle to protect what they have. Um, and I think that we can find, we can use that as a metaphor because we can see people in the world today who are living lives that are similar to the way that the gods are described in, the, in myth, where they have everything that they could possibly want, but it's at the expense of having to defend it from sharing it with others. So the nature of samsara is that it continues, even for the most privileged people in society, even for the most privileged beings in the cosmos. Um, suffering is prevalent and that it's what drives us through our life, but it's also what drives us into our future lives. Um, and the nature of samsara is that it's produced by our own errors and judgment. That suffering is not something that's imposed upon us by, um, by forces outside of us, but that the things, even things that seem to be ha being imposed upon us from the outside are actually the results of causes, previous causes. And those previous causes were put into place by our own poor judgment our own selfishness, our own competitiveness, our own um, rudeness 
our own um, misdeeds um, of action and speech, um, but also caused by our own habits of thinking negatively about the world. And, you know, we, we see a lot of strife in the world that we're in today, a lot of divisiveness, um, violence, um, injustice, economic injustice, racial injustice. We see people marginalized, disempowered. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed by all of that because we have so much access to information. Um, we can we can see so much of what's going on in the world today that it, it's easy to feel like we're being inundated by all of the suffering in the world. Um, but according to this model of samsara, suffering is pervasive. It's not a unique characteristic of the modern world. It's not something that... Um, is due to industrialization or technologization or imperialism. Although those are causes of suffering, those are aspects of suffering. But though, but suffering was just as much a problem 2,500 years ago when Siddhartha Gautama made his discovery of awakening. Um, he just as much talked about the the problems of distraction, of the allure of trying to get involved in things that in problems that we try to solve and in getting involved in those problems we just end up making the problems worse um he was just he just he said that it was just as much a problem then as it is now that that we um are captivated by materialism money and commerce um acquisitiveness um trying to protect ourselves with material comforts, trying to distract ourselves with um, entertainment. Those things were just as much a problem in antiquity as they are today. And it's not because, um, it's not just a, a characteristic of our world, but you see it's a characteristic of samsara. It's a characteristic of the, the habits of the mind to try to solve our problems through distraction or to identify things that are problems and go out, going out and trying to solve them, getting into fights with people to try to convince them that we're right. And so in Buddhism, there's two, there's two main ways to address samsara. Um, one of those is one that we're, that we're familiar with, which is acting in the world to help others. Um, trying to, doing what we can to try to alleviate the suffering of other people. Um, looking to ways that we can contribute to our community, ways that we can contribute to our society to try to make the world a better place. Working to end injustice, working to improve equality and equity. But um, equally important and maybe more important is um, working internally to uproot the causes of suffering, the causes of samsara in our own consciousness. Um, because in Buddhism, Buddhism teaches that we'll never be able to end suffering in the outer world unless we've been able to end suffering in our own mind stream. And so the, the purpose of acting in the outer world, the purpose of working to help others 
is really to change the our karma, to change the 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 flow of our consciousness, the flow of causation, to move the stream to redirect the flow of karma, the redirect the flow of the river um, into closer to or more in the direction of peace and equality and um, freedom from suffering. True, true happiness. So we, we do act in the outer world. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of talk in the Buddhist world today about Buddhist activism and that um, and criticism of Buddhists that we just sit around on our cushions and don't actually do anything and that we are trying to um, become perfectly still and just kind of detach and, and tune out the suffering of the outer world and we can find our little kind of happy place and just sort of stay in our little happy place and that Buddhists aren't active enough in the world. Um, and interestingly, that, that's not a new criticism of Buddhism. It's a it's a, a big topic in Buddhism right now, but it's not a new criticism of Buddhism. Um, many of um, Buddha's followers in his lifetime and, and shortly after his death were dropouts, social dropouts, who didn't own, who got rid of all of their possessions, only had the clothes on their back and a begging bowl, didn't ever touch money, traveled around going door to door begging for leftover food basically eating other people's garbage because of course in those days there wasn't refrigeration so yesterday's food was either going to go to the livestock or the dogs or the um, Buddhist beggars going door to door asking for food um, and there was a response to that that Buddhists needed to be more active in the world to be more engaged in the world and that criticism you know it persists today but it's important that when we're working to, to alleviate suffering in the world by, through activism or social engagement, that that's on pair, that's on parity with our own ability to maintain a state of equanimity and, and mental equipoise and calm. Um, you know, there's kind of an, um, there's kind of an attitude in, in, um, in modern social justice activism circles that if you're not angry, you're not paying attention and that we should be, that our, that our um, activism should be motivated by this, um, that we're incensed about injustice. But in order to be effective Buddhist activists, we actually need to engage because we're philosophically motivated by wanting equity and ending suffering, alleviating suffering for others. And that's what makes us effective as activists, that we're coming from a place of, of peace and equipoise, that we're not contributing to the anger in the world, contributing to the, to the divisiveness, not engaging in the fighting, but rather working in ways that are constructive and positive. And this is, um, this is bodhicitta. This is, um, you know, it's customary at the beginning of, the, of a Buddhist class to or a Buddhist practice to set our motivation. And that motivation is bodhicitta, working for the benefit of others, ending suffering for ourselves, but also ending suffering for others. Um, and so this Buddhist activism, if it's coming from this place of, of um, genuine caring and, and mental calm, that's this embodiment of bodhicitta, this engaging with the world, wanting to help others, but underpinned by this understanding of, of karma that we're, 
that what we're doing is planting the seeds that are going to ripen in the future as a more peaceful, more just, more equitable world. And that we're, with our actions, we, it's wonderful if we see positive results of our actions in the present day, but we also can't be attached to that because we get frustrated if we work hard and don't see the results that we want to see. And we need to realize that what we're doing is affecting the outer world, but even more importantly, we are affecting our mind. We're affecting our worldview. So that's bodhicitta, that desire, um, that that aim, that intention to um, develop compassion in in a radical, powerful, active, potent, engaged kind of way. And that's how we become a that's how we become a bodhisattva, the the path of of um, Mahayana Buddhism. Um, it's also customary at the beginning of the class to um, go for refuge. And um, we go for refuge in Buddhism to the, the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, we go for refuge to Buddha by recalling that um, enlightenment is possible, that, that um, Gautama Buddha's great discovery was that suffering could be ended and that what he called nirvana, the great cessation, the cessation of mental affliction, the cessation of, of pain and suffering, or perhaps not the cessation of pain, but the cessation of suffering. That's an interesting conversation. Um, the cessation of suffering is possible and that it's worth striving for. And um, we, go, we go for refuge, we take sh shelter, we get solace in the idea that this is possible, that it's a worthy goal and that, um, that this you know, historical person, um, Gautama Buddha, um, set this, set the stage for us. Uh, we go for refuge to the Dharma, the second of the three jewels. Um, the Dharma are, are the teachings, the methodology. Um, I find this helpful because I recall that wherever I am, there's something that I can do. Um, it's not like, um, Gautama Buddha was an outlier and he was the only one ever, but that he taught many different instructions and he, um, many of his, many people in the subsequent centuries have, um, replicated his results and that there is a, there's a path, there's a technique, there's, there's something we can do. Um, it's not just like lightning striking and, and uh, it's a one in a million chance. It's that wherever we're at, we can apply the techniques. Um, we can learn the methodology and we have tools that we can use. We have a toolbox. So going for refuge to the Dharma is like remembering that we have a toolbox and whenever we encounter a problem, we have a tool in our Dharma toolbox. And then the third is the Sangha. Um, and going for refuge to the Sangha is remembering that, the, that like I mentioned, uh, that the Buddha's results are replicable and that many people over the centuries, including people alive today, have, have um, realized the same discovery that Buddha has. Um, they've put the experiments into practice and they have made the same kinds of transformations in their consciousness. Um, and also the Sangha is that we have a lot of support in our lives. We have 
Um, we have our Dharma community. We have Dharma centers. We have um, Dharma friends. Um, we have people that we can turn to and ask for help. We have people who are supporting us. And so taking refuge in the Sangha is also this notion that we, um, that we have a lot of support, that we're not alone in the process and that we're not um, kind of blazing a trail, that we have, we have the Buddha's kind of exemplary message. We have the, the toolbox, the techniques that we can use. And also we have a community of friends who are, who are working with us to, um, to help us along the path. So this is our um, third session on the Heart Sutra. Um, the Heart Sutra is, um, is a very short Buddhist text. Um, one of the things that makes it interesting is that it's so pithy, it's so condensed. Um, but one of the issues with that is that um, it, because it's so condensed, there's a lot of information that's sort of left out of the text. There's not a lot of exegesis within the text where it, tell, where it explains itself in great detail. It mentions a lot of concepts and a lot of topics um, almost in passing. So it's worth taking time to go into the text because there's so much useful information that we can get by reading between the lines and by unpacking a lot of this technical terminology. Um, it's in the genre of Prajnaparamita. And the, this is a Sanskrit word. It's the title of the text, Prajnaparamita Hridaya Sutram. And um, Prajnaparamita means the perfection of wisdom, um, transcendent wisdom. Uh, we have conceptual wisdom, which is where we're studying philosophy, we're working with ideas, we're trying to understand the world more deeply, trying to understand our, ourselves more deeply. We're working with concepts, with language, we're, um, we're reading texts, we're discussing, we're, we're working on kind of opening our mind, expanding our perspective, um, broadening our perspective. Um, but the purpose of conceptual wisdom is to get to non-conceptual wisdom. And that's what Prajnaparamita is really saying. It's, it's using conceptual wisdom, to, which is prajna, to uh, get to non-conceptual wisdom, prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. Perfect wisdom in this, in this philosophy is uh, a non-conceptual, direct, unmediated, um, immediate, visceral experience of reality without conceptual overlay. What we're constantly doing is we're narrating our experience. We're applying words, concepts, ideas to the things that we're experiencing. We're naming and labeling our feelings. We're constantly looking, we're constantly saying, how does this make me feel? Do, does, is this attractive? Is this repulsive? Is this something I want more of? Is this something I want less of? We're, we're constantly fabricating our world, fabricating our experience. And we're, Really what we're doing is fabricating our experience, but the, the fundamental flaw is that we think that our experience is objectively true about the world, the outer world. Um, we're constantly ascribing motivations to other people. Um, when we don't understand where people are coming from, we think that they must be, there must be something wrong with them. But we're, that's all taking place in our own framework. That's our own worldview. 
our own ideologies that much of the time we're not aware that that's what we're doing because it's happening so quickly. So non-conceptual wisdom is engaging with the world without constantly being it being filtered through our our ideology, our ideology, our worldview, our ideas, our opinions, our feelings, our thoughts. And what makes that non-conceptual is that experiencing the world directly, there would we we can't say anything about it without introducing new ideas, new um, new concepts, new. In order to talk about it, where we're packaging it up in from our perspective um this is what's um, called duality and versus non-duality in buddhism and duality is that i'm trapped in my subjective experience i'm i only have access to the world through my six senses the the, my five senses and my mind my consciousness the sixth sense in buddhism which we'll talk about today um and uh and so that's and that's the world for me and I don't have access to anyone else's version of the world, but everyone else's version of the world is, is similarly limited by their experience, by their senses. And so Buddhism is saying it's possible to experience the world without, go, without it being filtered through your conceptual overlay, without it being filtered through your worldview. And that's um that's the purpose of studying wisdom that's the purpose of prajnaparamita so this is um this uh kind of difficult loaded it's actually not that difficult but it's it, it's um it's difficult to access but once you access it it's not that difficult this concept of emptiness in buddhism and part of what makes it difficult is that emptiness is often is very easily misconstrued as nihilism, and it's a common sort of misconception of, in Buddhism that emptiness means that there's nothing. But what emptiness is, what emptiness means, and what the Heart Sutra is all about, is that the world is the world or objects are empty of the qualities that we ascribe to them as self-existent. This is what we talked about in a lot in the class last week. Um, and so early in the Heart Sutra, it, it defines this. This is the this is the you know the famous statement from Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. And that's true not just of form, but it's also true of sensation, perception, um, volition, and consciousness itself. So, this is a challenging this is a challenging concept um, to grasp. Um, but it's not as challenging as it sounds. It's just challenging to grasp. Once you have it, it's not. It, it seems kind of self evident, actually. Um, it, the Heart Sutra in the line before that one says that things are empty of self-nature. We have all the, remember we we have this the Buddha Sutras are in a narrative format. So we have 
Avalokiteshvara, the, the Buddha of compassion, the Bodhisattva of compassion, meditating on Prajnaparamita. He's hanging out in this non-dual, non-conceptual, perfection of wisdom meditative space. He, he looks out upon the world, so there's not nothing. He's in Prajnaparamita, but there's not nothing. He's looking out upon the world, he or she. Avalokiteshvara's uh, uh, gender is ambiguous, as which is true, actually, of all Buddhas, but... Um, Avalokiteshvara is looking out upon the world and what Avalokiteshvara sees is that the the things that make up a person, the characteristics of a person are all empty of self-nature. Um, and that's uh, Svabhava Shunya in the text. So Svabhava, Bhava meaning being um, uh, things, uh, nature or essence or, or selfness, these are all weird technical terms. They're all weird words, right? But a thing's beingness, a thing's existence, it's, uh, it's, the text calls it self-existence. So that's interesting because we have the word existence and we have the word self and they're combined to create a new word, self-existence. So it's not just that it exists, it's that it seems to exist intrinsically. So it's seeming intrinsic existence is empty meaning it lacks the self-existence that it seems to have. And that seems is what's crucial because the, the self-nature of a thing is not coming from the thing. It's coming from our conception of it. So when I have a teacup, the teacup seems to me to be a teacup. It's not a pen. It's not a shoe. It's not uh, my car keys. It's not all of the other things. And I don't struggle with that, right? I don't have to look at this object and be like, is this my car keys? No, no, this is a teacup. Its teacupness is is its self-nature. It seems to me unambiguously, obviously, clearly a teacup. When I leave the room, my teacup is still here because it's my teacup. That's its self-nature. And that's it's empty of that. It doesn't have those characteristics. And the reason is because those characteristics only exist as a quality of my perception. They don't exist as a quality of the object. And that's why, that's what we're, we really have to grasp in the, in the concept of emptiness. Um, so quali- what empty of self-nature means, things that, th- things that we think of as self-nature that are not actually there are qualities like permanence. Um, so I think of the teacup as permanent and like, okay, when I think about it, I know like I could drop the teacup and break it or um, my house could burn down and the teacup could be lost in a fire um, or somebody could come into my house and take my teacup and when I would come back, my teacup would be completely missing. So I know, you know, or the, the sun could go supernova and destroy the entire planet and my teacup would cease to exist. Um, you know, so when I think about it, okay, I know that it's not permanent in that sense, but I, the, the permanence that I think it has is that when I leave the room and when I come back, it's going to be there. It seems permanent to me. Emptiness, Buddhism is saying that that is a quality of my perception, not a quality of the object. Um, another example of self-nature is that I think that my stuff is under my control. Um, so similarly, I think that my teacup, it, if my teacup were my, if my teacup were 
had self-nature, it couldn't break. It, I couldn't lose it um, because it would be under my control. Um, that's another example of the self-nature that it doesn't have. Because, of course, upon analysis, of course the, the teacup could be lost or destroyed. Um, of course it's empty of self-nature. But moment to moment, I assume when I go to sleep that my teacup is going to be there in the, in the moment. That, can, that idea that the teacup is always going to be there, when, I don't, when unexamined, that idea that the teacup is always going to be there, that's the self-nature that emptiness is negating, that Buddhist emptiness is negating. Another example of the self-nature is that when something when when something seems to me to be when something seems to me to be what it is unequivocally, like um, somebody says something rude to me, and my immediate reaction is the rudeness of that person. The rude the rude person. See, is it svabhava, right? The fact that I think that is a rude person is the self-nature of the rude person. But, you know, I can disprove that that's, a, that that's true. I can disprove that the, that self, that the self-nature of the rude person uh, isn't, isn't true. I can prove that it's not true, which is that not, they're not always rude. They're not rude to all people at all times. Um, as I develop more patience... I can not react to the rudeness. I can just let it I can let it go. Somebody says something rude to me and I can and I can learn how to not let it bother me. And that's the the self-nature of the rude person is changeable. I can change the rude person into not a rude person by changing how I react to them. So this is an example. The self-nature, the svabhava is the rude person. The but it's em the rude person is empty of the self-nature of the rude person. And the proof of that is that I can change my attitude or that they're not rude all the time. If they had the svabhava of the rude person, everybody would find them rude all the time. There would not be any possibility for them to not be a rude person. That's the svabhava that Buddhism is negating with emptiness. So you can see how once you start to work with this, it's not that far out. Like emptiness, like we can get into metaphysical emptiness and non-duality, but beginning to get a toehold into emptiness is not that difficult. It's pretty easy for us to see like, oh, if I was more patient and I didn't get irritating, irritated, that was a Freudian slip. If I develop more patience and I'm less irritated, then I change the seeming self-nature of the irritating person. Okay. I don't mean to belabor the point, but emptiness is something that, I mean, the whole text is about emptiness. So um, we have to at least start playing with the idea as we get into it. So um, we have this formula that um, Avalokiteshvara has set up for us. Avalokiteshvara looks upon the world and he sees what are called the five skandhas. Um, skanda is a is a weird word uh, in English. The, it's a Sanskrit word. Um, and when he says the five skandhas, and he starts with form, right? Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Whatever. Um, 
form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. That's the formula we need to recite in our mind. And he says this is just true of form, but it's true of the other four skandhas as well. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and start talking about these technical terms in Buddhism because here's we, we need to kind of underst understand what Avalokiteshvara is talking about in, to, in order to understand what he's negating. Um, one of the things that makes the Heart Sutra a um, controversial text, even within Buddhism, is that it attacks other Buddhist ideas. It attack philosophically attacks other B Buddhist ideas. So in early Buddhism, um, Buddha simply defines, he, he actually doesn't use the word shunyata. He doesn't use the word emptiness. But he does say that things are impermanent and that we're, be, that suffering comes from thinking things are not impermanent. Because we think that the relationship is going to last forever, because we have this unconscious, because we have this idea of the self-nature of the relationship as lasting forever, when the relationship ends, we feel very devastated because we thought the relationship was permanent in some kind of subtle way. And when so Buddha is saying, like, it's good to have the relationship, it's fine to have the relationships, but don't be attached to it because if you're attached to its permanence, you're going to be dismayed when its nature as not permanent reveals itself. Um, and that's pretty much the extent of Buddhist emptiness in, in early Buddhism, in the, in the original um, sutras, before Mahayana came on the scene, um, before Prajnaparamita came on the scene. Um, which are philosophical developments that were that came to Buddhism later. Um, one of the early things that Buddha says is like, you think that you have a self, but actually you're just this combination of the five skandhas. And the the idea of yourself, your svabhava, your self-existent self, the you who you believe yourself to be, the the I that I am so subjectively tangled up in that I cannot see the world from any perspective other than my own perspective because I'm me and everything else is not me. That self is an emergent phenomenon of these functions. And these functions are the skandhas. So the word skanda in Sanskrit is weird to translate into English. Um, it has meanings like um, quantity, grouping, um, material collected into a bulk. So a skanda is like a pile of garbage or something. I think of it as like categories. Like we have categorical thinking, right? We're like, um, you know, we have categories that like tea is one category and coffee is another category, but then we can create a new category that includes both tea and coffee and it's like brewed beverage, right? Hot brewed beverage. Or we can, and so we create these different categories and we would say, well, like iced tea and iced coffee is different than hot tea and hot coffee. And so these are skandhas that we're creating, right? We're creating these groupings that we then apply categories to. And that's how we're constantly seeing, is it this or is it that? Like we have categories of cats and we have categories of dogs and that's like the skanda of cats and the skanda of dogs. But then we can also take the skanda of pets and put both cats and dogs and then a lot of other creatures 
that are not cats and dogs into that skanda. And so um, in Buddhism, you know, in English, you'll often hear this word translated as aggregates or heaps, which are both adequate translations for the word skanda if you're just looking it up in the dictionary. But I don't really think it captures, like, we don't think of form as a heap. We don't think of physicality as a heap. But we can think of it as a category, right? A category of of how we collect objects and, and classify them. And so form is the first of the five skandhas. Um, and form means, first of all, our body, because that's our subjective form skanda. Like that's how we experience the form skanda first and foremost, is like I, I can feel my body and I don't feel the book until I touch it. And then the book becomes part, you know, the book becomes part of my form skanda because now I'm touching it and it, I'm having like tactile sensations of the book. And so the, the book, like my, the form skanda of my body and the form skanda of the book are, are, I'm having a tactile sensation of that. But actually, according to Buddhism, according to this model, all physical objects are part of my form skanda. Everything that I see is part of my form skanda. Um, so from that point of view, because we're talking about a self, we're talking about myself or yourself. I mean, we're not just talking about myself, but for me, it's myself, right? For you, it's yourself. I don't, ha- I don't know anything about yourself, but I know a lot about myself. And I am very interested in what happens to myself, but the rest of yourselves, I'm kind of ambivalent about because it's not myself. You know, I'm, that's, like that's how I know I'm. I, I know that I'm real, and the rest of you are just kind of ideas out there floating around, um, and not just because of Zoom. Even if we were in the room together, our form skandhas would be a little have a little more interrelationship if we were in the same room together. Um, but nevertheless, um, one of the characteristics of the skanda is that thinking that my body is separate from my environment is an illusion. Um, that's part of the aggregate. That's part of the heap. I'm, they're, they're a single heap. Um, and what's important about this is that we're actually talking about consciousness. And physical objects are a quality of consciousness because my experience of the world is taking place through my process of interacting with things. And I can like hypothetically go to, into my refrigerator right now and know what is more or less is in my refrigerator. And I can kind of extend my mind to include that in my form skanda right now. But it's part of my form skanda. And I can think about things in other parts of the world. I can think about people in other parts of the world. And they're part of my form skanda in as much as I can expand what I'm... Co- conscious of, what I'm aware of, I can direct my awareness, I can direct my consciousness to be aware of these physical objects. And all of that together is the form skanda. And, you know, it's sort of like wherever we go, the world is sort of folding out in front of us. Um, When I open the door, like the hallway sort of materializes in front of me. And I I don't know if you've ever... I experience this when I'm driving. And sometimes when I'm driving, I don't feel like I'm moving through space. I feel like I'm 
situated in the middle and everything else is kind of moving around me and the world is sort of peeling out in front of me and sealing up behind me and I think of that as like a as a sort of way of feeling the form skanda because it's not just me and my car hurtling through the cosmos it's that the world that I experience is the world of form for me and similarly the world of experience the world of form that you experience is the world of form for you so this is the the form aggregate the form heap Ooh, I hate I just really don't like the word heap for skanda it just doesn't capture what it just doesn't capture the vibe you know but it's really it's a, you know it's an accurate translation and translation is a huge problem in in all in all philosophical stuff where you're not working in the language that it was written in so I'm not going to get started on that but that's a really good it is a good example of emptiness though the emptiness of words like you'll see the word heap to instead of skanda but like Skanda means heap, but it doesn't really capture the idea of what Skanda is saying in this context of the five Skandas. So Avalokiteshvara says form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. He doesn't say form has emptiness and emptiness has form. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than form. How do we wrap our minds around that? Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. And the same is true. Here's the next line in the text. Eva meva vedana samjna samskara vijnanam. Um... These are the other four aggregates. Vedana, Samjna, Samskara, Vijnana. Vedana, we've I've kind of exhausted form a little bit, but um, Vedana is the next of the five aggregates. And this is sensation. Um, and it's basic sensory experience. Um, we think of sensation... One of the things that we do automatically, that Buddhism is trying to like break down the process into micro moments to help us see how our, what we think of as self, what we think of as svabhava, self-nature, is actually coming up, coming into being through like a gajillion micro moments of like compiling our world. And we just sort of like gloss over that compiling process and we say, oh, teacup. But... But actually, there's many different discrete functions, discrete activities that are happening in our consciousness that lead up to me identifying this as a teacup. And the first one is sensation. And sensation, it, it, it means um, basic sensory experience. It means basic contact with any raw sense data. So... We'll get into the senses in, in a little bit. If we have time today, we'll get into the senses. But if not, we'll get into them next week. The, um, the senses in Buddhism are the five senses that we're used to, right? Sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. But it also includes consciousness, the, uh, um, our thinking capacity. And so the, the, um, there are objects of sensation that each of our five senses encounter. And then the sixth sense of consciousness engages with mental objects 
like I can right now ask you to imagine an orange and you can you can have some kind of you can perceive an orange with your mental consciousness even though you're not perceiving it with your eyes and your nose and your mouth but but if I tell you like that feeling of putting a piece of an orange slice in your mouth and biting down on it you can invoke that in your mind even though it's not happening and so that's the sixth sense that you're experiencing without there without the other five senses um, contacting an object so sensation vedana is that basic contact um, and in buddhism the in buddhist sort of psychology buddhist um I don't know. They don't really have neuro, neuro, neurology, but that's how we get in the modern world. This is how we would think of this as kind of neuroscience. But Buddhism has a different sort of way of categorizing it. But that's what we're talking about is like the basic contact with a sense object. And so that sensation is like the capacity to contact a sense object. And then the immediate visceral response of positive, negative, or neutral. So this is like uh, an example of sensation is when you touch something hot and you immediately pull your hand away before you even, you don't put your hand on it and say, hmm, is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Sensation is that immediate response, you know? Or when you put something disgusting into your mouth and you immediately spit it out because it's like, oh, that's rotten, that's moldy. Sometimes we don't see the mold, we don't smell the mold, but as soon as we put it in our mouth, we know it's moldy. That's the sensation. Um, and then later there's these conceptual overlays of saying oh that unpleasant sensation was rotten food but buddhism breaks this down to say that the that sensation the capacity to contact a sense object with your sense organ is one of the five skandhas one of the five heaps one of the categories of experience that's how i'm that's one of the ways that i'm going to try to translate skanda. A lot of times people just don't translate these Sanskrit words because we don't have clear English translations for them. Samsara is a great example of that. So this category of experience, that's how I'm defining skanda right now, this category of experience is the capacity to make contact between a sense organ and a sense consciousness, and then the immediate visceral response to it. The next of the five is um, perception. Uh, Sanskrit is samjna. So um, the the you know I'm working. We're we're translating this text, the Heart Sutra, directly from Sanskrit um, because I think we gain a lot of insight about what the text is saying by looking at it the, in the original language. Samjna um, is uh, the prefix sam, which means um, to join and jnya, which is the same um, the same word as in prajna, right? Wisdom. So jnya is to know. Um, the it's the root that means to know. So some jnya means to put together, to experience connecting, to experience joining. Um, we could say putting together or together maker. That would be kind of a clunky but literal translation of samjna. Um, we could say constructing. But again, constructing doesn't really describe this because um, this is the next, the, um, these are progressive. The five skandhas, again, the word heaps doesn't really catch this, 
because it makes them sound like they're discrete piles of something that you have like there's five piles of something in the middle of the room. But they're also progressive stages of how consciousness moves from form to uh, to awareness. And so the first of these is Vedana, some uh, sensation, basic sensation. Samjna means perception. So if we're putting together, what we're putting together is the uh, the sense object and the perception of the sense, the, the, the sense consciousness connecting with the sense object. So there's the immediate visceral sensation. This is Vedana. Vedana is like, okay, this is, I can label these characteristics. It's smooth. It's cool. Um, when I look at it, I can see that it's kind of transparent and cloudy. Like those are, those are perceptions. The sensations are precognitive before I've labeled anything. Basic sense contact. Um, Samjna, perception, is the um, awareness of the characteristics. So Samjna would be like the smoothness, the coolness, my ability to label, put names on these things to identify the characteristics. It's still not yet teacup. It's still just identifying the uh, identifying and labeling the base characteristics of the sensations. So the sensation, the first there's the form, rupa, the existence of the world. Then there's the contact of the sense object to the sense organ. That's, um, that's, some, that's vedana. And then we have some samjna, which is that I'm aware of the contact in the sense consciousness. And then we have the, the fourth one, which is samskara. Um, now, sum is the same prefix, right, um, to, to connect with. And then kur, samskara, the kur is the, is the verb to do or to make. So whereas samjna is to be aware of the joining, samskara is to, con- is to form or make, uh, to, to form a, an idea about it, a basic idea about it. So again, I want to emphasize that these are all kind of subconscious functions of awareness, of consciousness. Um, Samskara is another word that's very difficult to translate because in some ways we have samjna, which is to be aware of the joining and then samskara which is to make or do the joining um and this word is translated often as impulses or volition um it it can mean karmic activities um these are the literal translations now how samskara is used in buddhist sort of psychology is that we have like a basic reactivity, our, our basic impulse to label things as the object. So samskara is the point at which this becomes a teacup. But what's crucial to understand is that that's not something I'm deciding. It's driven by the, a quality of my perception. Right. I don't like I said before, I don't look at this and and think, is it a pen? Is it car keys? Is it a shoe? Is it a cat? 
What category does this fit into? Oh yeah, this is a teacup. Um, samskara is when I look at this and without any hesitation, I know that it's a teacup. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to choose which I'm not able to choose which label to apply to this thing. I immediately viscerally experience it as a teacup and the teacupness seems to be a quality of the teacup. That's its svabhava, its self-nature, which we're saying is empty. So volition, it, volition is, again, here we go with the translation stuff. Um, volition is a, the, is a way that English, that way that samskara can be translated into English is volition. But the problem with the English word volition is it sounds willful. Volition in English sounds like I am making this a teacup. I decide that it's a teacup. That's where it's that's where its teacupness is coming from. That's what the word volition sounds like it means in English. But in Buddhism, if we're going to use volition as a technical term, as a technical term in Buddhism, volition is a precognitive impulse to see the world the way that we do. In other words, the categories that we're applying are not categories that we're choosing to apply to things. They're driven they're driven they're forced upon us. And this is where like karma or more or more specifically the 12 links of of interdependence, which this text gets into and which we will talk about. Um, the 12 links of inter interdependence, volition is a pre-cognitive level. It's, it's even before name and form, which in the 12 links, name and form is the moment at which you go, oh, this is a teacup. Okay. Before that even is the impulse to label things and the impulse to label things to categorize things is a precognitive function of of consciousness so this is samskara the these impulses driven by driven by causes but driven by the vast matrix of causation which is too complex to understand because there's just way too many moving parts for us to wrap our mind around um, we're driven to see things the way that we do. It seems to us automatic. That seeming as automatic is the svabhava. The fact that this is a teacup, the instant I lay eyes on it, that's its svabhava. But actually, that instant of laying eyes on it is, pre, is premeditated because the of the form skanda, the... Uh, Vedana sensation skanda, the samjna perception skanda, and then samskara, the impulse to label. And then the fifth of these is vijnana, and that's consciousness. Consciousness is the mo moment at which uh, the vijnana is the moment at which I am aware that I experience the thing as the thing. So normally when we think about consciousness we think of consciousness at, we think of basically what buddhism is trying to refute is that we think of there's the world and there's my consciousness that's apprehending the world but buddhism is saying well no that's actually like the 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 world exists whether you you know the world exists as a quality of your perception because the world only exists as a joining of your perception and the sense object. This you have your perceptual perceptual qualities, and you have the sense objects. And then when those things match, that when those things meet, 
That's when the physical world comes into being. And that meeting takes place because of all of these discrete functions which are happening almost simultaneously, almost instantaneously, definitely pre-cognitively, pre-aware, pre, uh, you know, beneath our, our conscious awareness, where we have the, this, the capacity for sensation, the capacity for perception, the capacity, the, the capacity, the, the drive to label and categorize things, samskara. And then we have consciousness, the capacity to discern things. So we have, so consciousness is vijnana. Now this is interesting because we have samjna, which is the same jna as vijna, vijnana. Samjna means to join the, the, the knowing which it doesn't mean cognitive knowing, it's just an experiential knowing, to join the knowing with the object. That's the word for sensation, the word for basic sense contact, asamjna, the joining together of the knowing and the sense. Vijnana, vi means to separate, to divide. So vijna is when I'm distinguishing different things. That's when I'm saying, oh, that's a cat, that's a dog. I'm able to perceive the difference between those. All of these other experiential steps have happened prior to that moment where I go, okay, that's a cat. Okay, that's a teacup. Okay, that's my car keys. Like uh, that's happening at the level of vijnana because vijnana is the ability to distinguish between things. This is a, um, I have the blue book versus the yellow book or something like that, right? That's happening at the level of vijnana. But even then, like book is happening at the level of vijnana. But samskara is the capacity to categorize things prior to vijnana of, 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 of apprehending the, distinction, the, the thing, the distinction that's being made. So according to, to um, Buddhist psychology or Buddhist science of the mind, which is, a, you know, these are, it's contentious to try to com combine these Buddhist philosophical concepts with these Western philosophical or scientific concepts. So, you know, I, we have to sort of, we have to play a little bit with words in order to, to, to wrap our mind around it. But according to this sort of Buddhist psychology, the, our consciousness, our self, the svabhava of, of myself and the svabhava of all of the objects in the world, the seeming self-nature of the world are actually an emergent phenomenon, a byproduct of, the end result of, all of these different functions, all of these different skandhas operating in concert, all of these different capacities, these different types of capacity for perception, these different types of experiencing are all happening as the, as the condition of possibility, as the basis, as the foundation, as the framework for what I call self. What I call what I call me, what I call teacup, what I call car keys, a cat, whatever. Though the the svabhava, the self nature of the thing, the seeming self existence of the thing, is an emergent phenomenon of all of these functions of perception operating in concert. Now that's the classical, that's the old school Buddhist definition of what a self is. It's not the svab, what we think the svabhava. We think the svabhava is a self, and Buddhism is saying no, that's not that that svabhava doesn't exist. 
It's actually this emergent phenomenon of all of these functions going on. That's the what I just described, right? Now, the Heart Sutra comes in here with a hatchet and starts attacking all of that stuff. And it says, those things don't exist either. So if you're an old school Buddhist coming from the, and you've been, and you've been studying the suttas, the old school sutras, and you say, okay, now I understand the self is not the svabhava, the self is the skandhas. I've got it now. I've got it all worked out. I, I'm not a, my, my svabhava is not my ego identity, my personality. The svabhava is not the tea, the teacupness of the teacup. I know that now. And the Heart Sutra comes in and says, no, those things aren't real either. You've, now you've applied a new self, a new svabhava to the skandhas. And the skandhas don't have a svabhava either. And this is where the Heart Sutra starts to kind of go off the rails. That's why that one, there's a, one of the commentary, a modern commentary on the Heart Sutra is called the Heart Attack Sutra. Because he, he says that if we, the author says that if we really understood what the Heart Sutra was saying, it would give us a heart attack. Uh, um, or maybe another way of looking at it is that when the Heart Sutra came on the scene, the Buddhist scene, all of the classical Buddhists had a heart attack because the Heart Sutra comes in and take, you've got your, you've got your skandhas now. And the heart, the heart Sutra comes in and says, no, you can't have those either. We're going to take your skandhas away from you. And so the, the, um, the Heart Sutra is now telling us that even the functions don't have a self-nature. So we start to deconstruct. We've deconstructed the gross mind by saying, well, the gross mind is an emergent phenomena of the skandhas. And now we're going after the skandhas and we're saying, but the subtle functions of the, of the, the subtle mind, that those don't have a self-nature either. Those are also things that you are putting... The fact that you think that that's a thing is, it's, is, a, is itself a svabhava that's also not there. These things also have the characteristics of emptiness. They're also impermanent. They're on a subtle impermanent. And I, you know, I was talking about gross impermanence in the like, I could drop the cup and break it. That's the gross impermanence of the cup. But emptiness saying, well, there's a subtle impermanence to the cup that the, the moment to moment existence of the cup is a quality of my perception not a quality of the cup. It's not that the cup is going to last for a while and then go away. That's its gross impermanence. But it's also subtly impermanent, which that it's moment to moment, instant to instant, is coming into its, its, its reality is not as a cup. Its reality is as a moment to moment perception of a cup. And that perception of a cup is underlied by the, by the five skandhas. But now we're going after the five skandhas and saying, well, those two don't have a self-nature. Those two also don't have a svabhava. So this is this is what the Heart Sutra is gonna like, you know, peck away at classical, I don't know, I don't know how to call it classical Buddhist philosophy. I was struggling with this earlier. It's like the Buddhism itself is uh, is lots of aggregates, lots of skandhas of things that we put together and we call we apply the skanda buddhism to like this vast array of different philosophical ideas and one example of that is that old school buddhism is saying oh the skandhas you don't have a self you have the skandhas and then mahayana or prajnaparamita more specifically prajnaparamita comes along and says no you don't have those either those also uh are empty of self nature and it starts deconstructing the buddhist philosophy 
that previously was like sacrosanct, that previously was the, the teachings of the Buddha. And then Prajnaparamita comes in and starts deconstructing what was previously held as sort of the orthodoxy of Buddhist teachings. This next line is, um, goes into more of a definition of, um, of emptiness. Um, it has a bunch of negations and, and it gives a kind of a nice lyrical quality. Uh, this is, here it is in Sanskrit. Eha Shariputra Sarva Dharmaha Shunyata Lakshanaha Anutpanna Aniruddha Amala Avimala Anuna Aparipurnaha. It's got a nice flow to it, I think. Um, so um, he he's saying, okay, therefore Shariputra. Shariputra is the interlocutor um, and the beginning of the text. Shariputra is the one who is hanging out in the audience. Um, Buddha is up on the throne. Um, Avalokiteshvara is up on the throne, and Shariputra says, "Hey, I've got a question. How do we how do we practice Prajnaparamita? Because he can see that." You know his teachers are up there in deep meditation and he says how should we how do we do this how do we live in order to put these put this into practice um, again this is sort of a characteristic way of all of the sutras almost all of the sutras begin with somebody in the audience asking a question it's usually shariputra so that's why this line has shariputra in it he's saying he's addressing shariputra therefore shariputra um, sarva dharma all dharmas, shunyata lakshanaha, um, have the mark of emptiness. So this is interesting. Um, the The first word is, is a is, there's compounds in Sanskrit. There's a lot of compounds where two words get mashed together to create a, like a concept. And so in this case, it's sarva dharma. Sarva means all. And dharma is, this is an interesting place, uh, this is an interesting use of the word dharma, not uncommon in Buddhism. Um, and like a lot of Sanskrit words, um, they take on a different, there's many different possible definitions of a Sanskrit word. And uh, the same word can mean different things in different contexts, in different places. And um, so we use the word dharma is kind of a shorthand for what what we really mean is Buddha Dharma because the word Dharma can mean lots of different things it can mean teachings um, so there's one form of Dharma that means teachings like when we take refuge in the Dharma we can take refuge in the Buddhist teachings Buddhist philosophical principles we can take refuge in Buddhist texts the toolbox as I put it right that's sort of Dharma in the sense of teachings um, but dharma can also mean um, truth or law. Um, it can mean this, the it can mean law in the sense of a natural law, like the law of gravity, and it can also mean law in the sense of um, uh, like a you know political or litigious law, like you know the, uh, if there's a law against jaywalking. So dharma can mean can take either one of those. Um, meanings as well. Um, it can mean reality. So sometimes we use the word Dharma to talk about emptiness, right? Like the Dharma body of the Buddha, the Dharmakaya, if you've ever heard that term. 
The Dharmakaya is the truth body of a Buddha. And so in that case, Dharma means truth, and truth is referring to emptiness. So that's kind of a colloquialism within Buddhism to use Dharma as truth, and truth meaning non-duality, non-conceptual understanding of ultimate reality. So there's quite a bit of layers just in the word Dharmakaya. Kaya means body, form, um, form or body. Um, so Dharmakaya is the truth body of a Buddha, and truth meaning the non-conceptual reality, non-conceptual unmediated perception of reality. So Dharma can take on that connotation, but it can also mean phenomena or um, experiences in the sense of we experience the world, things seem real to us because we're experiencing them. Um, so the word dharma can mean something very different in Buddhism, where it can mean truth, it can mean teachings, but it can also mean moments of consciousness. So um, there's a school, there's a philosophical system within Buddhism called Abhidharma, um, and I don't know if you've ever heard this term Abhidharma. Um, Tibetan Buddhism doesn't go into a whole lot of detail talking about Abhidharma, but they do mention it as a philosophical system. So if you hang around in Tibetan Buddhist circles, they'll talk about Abhidharma without going into a great deal of detail about what Abhidharma means. But um, Abhidharma, uh, Abhi means higher or greater, and Dharma in this case means knowledge or wisdom or truth. So Abhidharma is sometimes translated as the as higher wisdom or higher truth um, but in within abhidharma um, this I, i'm trying to help explain why this word dharma is complex and and take and means different things in different contexts so within abhidharma um, the word dharma means it refers to a momentary discrete instantiation of consciousness and so according to Abhidharma, our mind is not moving in a flow, but our mind is, is like um, frames of a movie, where it's like micro moments of which they say there are 60 every finger snap. So in this amount of time, you have 60 dharmas, 60 instantiations of consciousness every finger snap. Some people say that it's much more than that. There are Abhidharma texts that I've seen that say that there are 50,000 dharmas every finger snap. So in other words, it's like there are, there are micro moments of consciousness and that these are like cascading in a row and each one kind of bump triggers the next one and that one triggers the next one and that one triggers the next one. And they're happening in, happening in these like discrete moments that are moving at like 60, you know, at a million frames a second or a billion frames per second or something like that. And they refer to those moments of consciousness as dharmas. So each micro, 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 micro moment of consciousness is a dharma. And those dharmas are, it's not like a stream, but it's like a, it's like cast, it's like falling dominoes, where each one is the trigger for the subsequent one, and that's the trigger for the subsequent one. And then that goes on infinitely forward in time and with, not ever having had a beginning moment in time. So we're just like, we're like these frames of a, of a, of a movie. 
Um, so that's part of like in the Abhidharma system, that's how that's one of the ways that they define consciousness is that we're like this cascading flow of experiences that trigger subsequent experiences. So in this in this line, he's referencing Abhidharma by saying Sarvadharma Shunyata Lakshanaha. Sarvadharma, every all dharmas, all of these micro moments of instantiations of consciousness which in theory are discrete, but in our experience, we don't, we don't break them down into those micro moments. Part of the Abhidharma experiment was extremely deep meditators who can like slow down time so much that they can see everything that's happening in each instant of consciousness. Because then there's several things happening in each instant of consciousness that's triggering the subsequent instant of consciousness. And they're trying to break down, in the Abhidharma system, they're trying to break down how karma is working, how karmic seeds trigger subsequent events, and how karma is moving in what appears to be a flow, but is actually micro-moments. So here he's referencing Abhidharma by saying, all dharmas have the, have the mark of emptiness, shunyata, emptiness. And remember, shunya means empty, or void, or absence. And then ta, the suffix ta, makes it a process. And so that's shunyata, the emptiness of something. So emptiness, emptiness isn't a thing, but it's a, it's a process. It's the, it's the lack of something that we are imposing. So when we say things are empty, sarvadharma, all dharmas are empty, um, or, or have emptiness, or are emptiness, um, what it's saying is that we're imposing the the meaning content onto things and that they're empty of the content that we're imposing. Now, the word lakshana, which is another compound, shunyata lakshana, which means the, the lakshana of emptiness. But lakshana is another really tricky word in, um, in Sanskrit. Um, and it's it's one that is it's even it's even worse than some of the other words that I've mentioned in terms of like being able to pin down what it's saying because it's so contextual. Um, it takes on different meanings in all in all kinds of different situations. Um, and I've read texts which are translated into English where the um, I'm just reading the English translation, but the author translates the word lakshana as different words throughout the book. So, you know, some translators take as a goal, if they're going to translate it from Sanskrit into English, they find one English word that can stand for that Sanskrit word in all circumstances throughout the book. But I've seen other translators who translate the Sanskrit word differently depending on the context, which is quite confusing. Um, especially if you can't, if you're not able to go back to the original Sanskrit or the original Chinese, as the case may be, or Tibetan, and compare. So the word lakshana can mean um, mark, as in as in you've um, as in you have a bunch of bags of coffee, and you're marking if they're A grade or B grade, and so that mark would be the lakshana. Um, it can mean sign, like um, like the road sign, right? So if you see a road sign and 
Like I drive up and down 101 and it constantly is changing speeds. And so sometimes there, it has the lakshana of being 55 miles an hour. And sometimes it has the lakshana of being 65 miles an hour. And sometimes it has the lakshana of 35 miles an hour. And the lakshana is the sign that tells me, the street sign that tells me how fast I'm supposed to be going. So that street sign would be a lakshana. The number on the street sign would be the mark, the lakshana. Um, it can also mean symbol. So like we could say that like uh, a written number is a, is a symbol for a quantity. The, num the, the written symbol isn't the quantity. If you have two apples, the number two doesn't mean, doesn't mean you have two discrete things. It's a symbol representing two discrete things, right? So the number, would, the number two would be uh, a symbol. So that would be another possible definition of lakshana. Um, it can mean um, attribute. So it can mean like a, qu a quality or characteristic. So a lakshana can be like, um, a, a lakshana of my freshly brewed tea is that it's hot. A characteristic of the tea is that it's hot. Um, so that is another possibility of lakshana that you can define qualities or characteristics of something. Um, it, it means the it, it means to uh, to mark to sign to characterize indicate or designate so lakshana could also be pointing I'm 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 pointing at my teacup and the pointing is the lakshana I'm indicate the lakshana I'm indicating this teacup so that's another possible way of thinking about lakshana it can mean aim at or direct toward. So if I have a bow and arrow and I'm trying to hit the target, my act of honing in on the target with my bow and arrow would be the lakshana. I'm aiming towards something. Um, so the, the, the lakshana of emptiness is a pretty tricky term because there's so many different possible ways to think about this. Um, one of the ways that this is indicated, not in this text, but um, you perhaps, uh, especially if you're in the Tibetan Buddhist world, have, have heard this um, Sanskrit word, um, Mahamudra. The word mudra, which can mean like a, a hand gesture, right? Like if you're, if you've, uh, if, you know, people do these like hand gestures to indicate things, they're sort of like ritual gestures. So that's a form of a mudra, but mudra can also mean a stamp or a seal. So um, the seal would be like a, like in the old days when you would fold up a letter and then you would put hot wax on it and then you would stamp it and then that seal would show who the letter is from. And as long as that seal is intact, you know that the letter hasn't been opened. And the stamp tells you whose letter it is because the stamp is like their signature. So you know it's an official document from somebody and it hasn't been doctored because it's still sealed shut. That would be like the mudra. And so mahamudra means the great seal and that's a euphemism for emptiness. So here we have the word lakshana, which means um, mark or attribute or sign and you could and and so lakshana is similar to mudra in this instance where the mudra the great mudra maha mudra is the mark of emptiness the shunyata lakshana 
Sarva Dharma Shunyata Lakshana. Every instantiation of consciousness has the characteristic quality of emptiness. Anutpana Aniruddha Amala Avimala Anuna Aparipurnaha. Oh, it's just so pretty. I love that. Um, I'm going to mention these words here, and probably we're going to start with this next week as well, review it. Um, uh, I don't want to go over time, so I, so I don't want to go too much into this. Um, so all of these words have the prefix of on or a, which means, uh, which is a negation. So all of these words mean not this thing. Um, this is one of the characteristics of emptiness. One of the qualities of talking about emptiness is that it's described in negatives. Um, some schools of Buddhism do talk about emptiness in its positive characteristics, um, but for the most part, emptiness is described as a negation. So, um, anutpana means not born, and aniruddha means not destroyed. Amala means not impure. Avimala means not pure. Anuna means not deficient. And aparipurnaha means completely full. Um, but it's negated, so it means not, not deficient and not full not completed. I guess a paripurnaha, paripurnaha would, purna means full, and pari means completely. So it's saying completely full, as in like, like completely satisfied, cannot be improved upon, absolutely perfect, but it's negated. So it's saying, um, it's, it's not complete. It's not deficient. Emptiness is not deficient, but it's not complete. It's not produced. It's not destroyed. It's not impure, and it's not pure. So all dharmas have the mark of emptiness. All phenomena, all experiences, everything that can possibly happen, certainly all of our experiences, they're not born and they're not destroyed. So here, even though he's saying things are absent of the self-nature that they seem to have, they're also not born and not destroyed. Things don't have an origin and they don't have an end or a cessation. They're not impure, meaning, you know, impure in, in this case does literally mean, the word pure mean, impure means uh, dirt or stain or feces like it, it has the same connotation that impure does in in English they're not impure but they're also not pure they're they're not without they're not with a stain or impurity but they're also not without a stain or perfect um, nothing is wanting nothing is deficient nothing is incomplete but also nothing is ever accomplished. Nothing is ever perfect. Nothing is ever full. So I think that's a good place to 
end. That's a kind of a meditative topic. And um, we'll start, I think next week we'll start with this line again. Um, because it's worth reviewing. It's one of the important lines in the text that's defining emptiness. Um, and then the text goes on to the next thing that it discusses um, are the sense organs, the sense objects, and the sense consciousnesses. So it's going into the process of perception into an even finer detail because we did the five kind of the five skandhas, the five um, categories of perception. But then it goes into another layer of perception, which is how the sense organs are working. And it deconstructs how the sense organs are working. And then, of course, as the Heart Sutra does, it summarily negates them. And then after that, we go into the 12 links of dependent origination, which is how things are coming into being, uh, according to the sort of classical old school Buddhism. Um, so that's what we'll get into after the sense consciousnesses. And of course, Buddhism does get into the, I mean, uh, this text, the Heart Sutra does get into how to practice Prajnaparamita. So at, at the end of all of this negation, there is a, a cash out, the, uh, a, um, a, practice instruction. After it gives us all of this philosophical negation, um, deconstructing everything that Buddhism has already had to say, it then goes on to say, here's what you can do to access the perfection of wisdom, prajnaparamita. So that's something to look forward to. And as is customary at the end of a Buddhist teaching, um, we take some time to dedicate the merit to, um, you know, as with the beginning where we set our motivation, where we think about the, the benefits of study and practice, of, of thinking about philosophy and putting philosophy into practice, and the motivation of helping others and serving others and, and working to make the world a better place. So too, at the end, we direct the efforts that we've made to that goal again. Um, we refresh our motivation by recalling that the purpose of studying philosophy is to develop a form of deep, lasting satisfaction for ourselves, but also for the benefit of, of our society, of our world, for beings that we can see and also beings that we can't see that we're working for the benefit of, of others. And in doing so, in doing this practice of studying and con contemplating, of developing um, the tools to apply to, to cultivate virtue, to act virtuously in the world, we are we're making real efforts towards that goal. And um, in the Buddhist model of causation, our intentions have a visceral impact on the world. Our intentions um, influence how the karma is going to ripen. We're, we're planting seeds in our garden, and by dedicating our merit, we can give more nutrition and more power to some of those seeds so that they will grow more rapidly. And um, 
and that they will produce fruits more powerfully and sooner. And the technique for doing that is dedicating the merit, which is to say that we are we are empowering those seeds to ripen in a specific way. And the most powerful way to do that is to wish that the benefits would uh, come for others, even more so than for ourselves. So when I think about how I want my karma to ripen, I, I realize that like I'm in pretty good shape myself. And when I look out on the world, I see that others need these benefits more than I do. And I dedicate my efforts towards their benefit rather than my own. And that makes the karma more powerful. It helps it ripen sooner. It helps it ripen faster. Um, and it helps, and it, instead of just helping myself selfishly, it has a benefit for everyone. And that's really the goal, um, to end suffering, not just for myself, but to end suffering for others, and especially people who are suffering more so than myself. Thanks for tuning in to the Mojo Hito podcast. For show notes, video, and more information, visit mojohito.com.